The scripture for today is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. The uh, book of Mark was written just as the apostles were dying off and the eyewitness the first generation of eyewitnesses to Jesus ministry were dying off and the uh, book was written uh, in order to make sure that we always had access to what the real Jesus really said really did now we've been going through the book of Mark and even though it's only chapter two we're only in the second chapter out of 14 chapters a change comes because up until now whenever Jesus spoke and acted Everybody was happy. Everybody praised God. Everybody was amazed. And you still see that response on the part of a number of people. Look at verse 12. Uh, This amazed everyone, and they praised God. But for the first time, and increasingly after this incident, you see people shocked and confused and furious about what Jesus is saying and doing. For the first time, we see people being confused, shocked, and even furious. And Mark, I think, uh, lets us see that there are at least three parties that are confused, shocked, maybe, and even furious. The seeker, the paralyzed man, is very confused, perhaps shocked, because of the way in which Jesus deals with him. Secondly, the readers through the centuries, people who have read this passage in light of the rest of the Bible, have also been confused, even shocked, at what Jesus does. But most of all, the religious leaders are not only confused, but they're shocked and they're murderously angry uh, about what Jesus does here. So the paralyzed man is confused and shocked, and the readers of the centuries have been confused and shocked, and the leaders are confused and shocked, and every one of these uh, parties shows us, gives us something important. And I think Mark is trying to give this to us. Through the paralyzed man, he's trying to challenge us. Through the... um, our own confusion about how this fits in with the rest of the Bible, he's trying to comfort us. And through the leader's shock and anger, he's trying to empower us. 
Now let's look at these three people, these three parties, and see what we can learn from each of them. First of all, uh, the paralyzed man is certainly surprised and probably shocked because notice uh, here's a man who will stop at nothing to get to Jesus. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Now, it couldn't be more dramatic. If somebody was doing this right now, imagine. You know, everything would stop. I would stop. Everybody's on my word, see. But what was it he wanted? He wouldn't let anything stop him. What was it he wanted from, everyone, from Jesus? Well, everybody knows. You know. I know. Everybody else knows. But it doesn't seem that Jesus knows. Because Jesus walks over to them, and instead of saying, rise up, be healed, Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if this guy was from New York City, he would have said something like this. He would have said, uh, gee, well, uh, thanks, but everybody in the whole world but you, Jesus, seems to realize that's not what I asked for. I'm paralyzed. I've got a more immediate problem here. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't. That's the whole point. Jesus is saying, no, you don't. It is amazing that though this man makes no reference to guilt or sin or forgiveness, Jesus does. Jesus is saying to him, you think you know the main problem of your life, and you don't. Jesus is saying, look, I know you've got problems. I I know you're suffering, and I'm going to get to that. I know you've been the victim of terrible things that weren't your fault. I'm going to get to that. But you need to realize that the main problem in a person's life is never their suffering, it's their sin. Boy, now, you know, I was, when I was preparing this, I was thinking, am I really going to get up in a public place in New York City and say that? But I have to, because I'm trying to show you what the text says. And, and if you find that offensive, would you please at least consider this? Ironically, when you say to somebody, which Jesus is saying to us, The main problem in your life is not what's happened to you, not what people have done to you, not what's occurred. The main problem in your life is not what's happened to you. Your main problem is the wrong way you've responded to what's happened. And ironically, that's empowering because you can't do that much, relatively speaking, about what's happened to you, about what other people are doing, but you can do something about yourself. So what is Jesus asking for this man to do about himself? And I would like to put it this way, metaphorically. Jesus is driving him deep. Jesus is saying, by coming to me and simply asking for your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. He's saying, you have underestimated the depths of your longings, the depths of the human longings of the heart. And therefore, you actually are not going deep enough. So, you know, you say, what does that mean exactly? Well, what he's actually saying is something along these lines. He says, everyone in the world, of course, who is paralyzed is going to want with every fiber of their being to walk. Of course. That's only natural. It's right. But surely this man would have been resting all of his hopes in that and would have been down deep in his heart saying something like this. He's almost surely saying, if only I could walk again, then my life would be right. I'd never be unhappy. I would never be discontent. I would never complain. See? If only I could walk, then everything would be right. And Jesus is saying, my son, 
you're mistaken. This may sound very harsh, but of course it's profoundly right. He says, when I heal you, the first thing that's going to happen, if that's all I do, you're going to have this euphoria, you're going to say, I'll never be unhappy again. Give yourself two months. Give yourself four months. You know this. You know this. Because the roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep. Now, nobody uh, has ever, I think, said this better. And I've been, I keep looking for a better quote, but every couple of years I've got to pull this one out because it just can't be beat. Cynthia Heimel uh, used to uh, write for the Village Voice. I don't think she writes anymore, but she's written for the Village Voice for many years. She's a New York City writer. Uh, and uh, she, um, she's been here long enough that she's known a number of people who were struggling actors and actresses, you know, working in you know, uh, working in restaurants and punching tickets at uh, theaters and all that, working in restaurants, and then they've become famous. She knows three, at least. She names, I'm not going to mention who they are because it might be unfair when, I, when, you, when you hear the quote. Um, I'm not going to mention who they are, but, but she says, you know, when they were struggling, people like all of us, looking up and saying, if only I had that, then my life would be fine. If only I could walk. If only I could make it in the business. If only I had this, if only I had that. We're all walking around doing that, aren't we? And she says, when they were like that, when they said, if only I had that, I'd be happy, and they didn't have it, they were like the rest of us New Yorkers. They were stressed. They were kind of driven. You know, they tend to get too angry. They tend to get too upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when they actually got the deepest desire of their heart, he, she says, they became awful, became unstable, angry, erratic, manic, she doesn't think it just, they just became arrogant because they got... No, no. She says it's worse than that. They're unhappier than they used to be. They're less happy. And here's what she says to explain it. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. The morning after each one of them became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. You see, she's sorry for them. She's not saying, oh, they've gotten arrogant. She knows what happened. They have gotten the thing that they said, if only I get that, then everything will be okay. And it wasn't. Very few of us really get that. And so very few of us are as unhappy as they are. And then she adds a statement that always takes my breath away because it comes right out of Romans 1. And here's what she says. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You know what Jesus is saying to this man? I'm not going to play that rotten joke on you. I'm not going to just give you your deepest wish until it's no longer your deepest wish. See, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that our deepest problem is every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. We're looking at something, whether it's to walk or to make it or a relationship or a condition or a situation. We're looking at something. We're saying, if I have that, then everything will be okay. But when you do that, when you look to those things and say, if I had that, then I'd be significant. Then I'd be safe. 
then I'd be secure. Those, you're looking to those things to save you. Now, you never use that term, ever. But you're looking to those things to save you. And as a result, if you never quite get them, you're always angry, you're always unhappy, you're always empty. But if you do get them, you're even more empty, you're even more unhappy. Because you see, Jesus says, I'm the only Savior that if you get me, will fulfill you, and if you fail me, will forgive you. And we think that the biggest problem we've got, and that's why we often go to Jesus like this man. When we first start going to Jesus, when we first start going to God, when we first start going to church, thinking, oh, I've got problems in my life. When we first have problems when we go to God, we're asking God to help us get our saviors. We're asking God to give us that little help over the hump so that we can save ourselves. It doesn't occur to us that the problem is that we're looking to something besides Jesus as Savior. And so almost always when we first go to him, we're, asking, we're saying, this is my problem. He says, no, you've got to go a lot deeper than that. You just want to turn over a new leaf. You just want to change a few things. You just want help to reach this or that goal, but you have to change the very thing that your heart most wants because that's what's screwing you up. Now, nobody's ever really put it better metaphorically than this place in the uh, third of the Narnia Chronicles. You know, in uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this little boy. He's not that little. He's a boy named Eustace. I think he's about 12. And everybody hates him, and he hates everybody. He's selfish. He's mean. Um, and uh, nobody can get along with him, but he finds himself on this boat, the Dawn Treader, taking this great voyage. And at one point, this boat um, pulls into a, an island, and Eustace goes off, and he uh, wanders off, and he finds a cave. And in the cave, it's filled with treasure, loot, diamonds and rubies and pieces of eight. And he looks and he says, I'm rich. And immediately, because he's who he is, he says, now I'm going to be able to pay everybody back. I'm going to be rich and those people that have laughed at me and have stepped on me, now I'm going to laugh at them and I'm going to step on them. And he falls asleep on what he doesn't know yet to be the horde of a dragon. He falls asleep on the treasury of a dragon and because he falls asleep with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, he's become a dragon. Big, horrible, ugly, terrible. And as time goes on, he realizes he's, there's no way out. He can't, he can't go to the boat. He can't return. He can't go back. He's, he's, he's going to be there alone. He's going to be ugly. He's going to be horrible all of his life. And he's lost hope, practically. And then one day, the great lion, Aslan, shows up, leads him to a clear pool of water, and says, undress and jump in. And suddenly, Eustace realizes, oh, undress. Take off the dragon skin. So he begins to gnaw and claw, and he starts to claw off the scales, and he starts to realize, There's a sh- I can shed my skin. And so he works at it, and he claws at it, and he finally peels off his skin, and to his terrible disillusionment, realizes that underneath, he's still a dragon. He's got another dragon skin underneath that. So he tries again, and then he tries a second time, and he tries a third time, and to no avail. Same thing happens over and over again. And finally, the lion says, you're going to have to let me do it. And here's Eustace's words. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So the very first tear he made went so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. 
Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself before. The other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he threw me in the pool. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I had become a boy again. Now, I know we're all different. We're all made of different... But I, I think I can go so far as to say that most of us who don't have a kind of made-up Jesus, who just loves us no matter what, those of us who have a real Jesus, those of us who have had any kind of real dealings with Jesus, it's hard to read, I would think, that passage without at least beginning to weep. Because like the young man, like the man, the paralyzed man, like Eustace, we think if we just get a little bit of help, we can save ourselves. But Jesus says, I've got to take you deeper. You've got to let me take my claws and go all the way to your heart and change the main things that your heart wants. That's what's screwing you up. Stop trying to turn over a new leaf. Stop trying to just reach this or that goal and use me to get to your real saviors and make me your savior. But the process by which he does that and goes deep and really deals with the, uh, the source of the discontent of our heart always feels every bit as threatening as that because this Jesus has claws. So, the confusion and shock of this, of this paralyzed man because Jesus simply doesn't give him, at least not to start with, what he's after is a challenge to us. But secondly, we need to see that there's also a great comfort for us. And that we find not in the confusion of the seeker, but the confusion and shock of readers of this gospel over the years. And here's what I mean by that. People who have tried to put what Jesus does here in context with all the rest of the Bible, scholars, Bible readers over the centuries, have noticed what appears to be on the surface a contradiction, a great contradiction. And that great contradiction is the fact that Jesus gives forgiveness when the man doesn't offer repentance. Right? You know? He walks up and says, you're forgiven. And he doesn't say, you will be forgiven if you do this. And he says, you're forgiven, present tense. Your sins are forgiven. And the guy didn't repent. And every other single place in the Bible, every other place in the Bible, it always says there is no forgiveness before God without repentance. You have to ask. Is this a contradiction? Now, do you not think it's a reasonable assumption? At least I hope you do. I'm going to try to show you it is. Would it not be a reasonable assumption to uh, think that Mark and Jesus knew something about the rest of the Bible? Yes. And that they probably weren't trying to overturn everything else the Bible says on every single page and trying to contradict it? Yes. I think it's a reasonable assumption that they knew the rest of the Bible and they were not trying to contradict what's on every other page. If that's the case, then I think we have something really neat here. What is Jesus really doing? Well, chapter 2, verse 8. See verse 8? It tells us something. I think Mark put this in here to help us with our problem. That Jesus can read the motives of the heart. You don't have to say it. Remember, Jesus knows what you're thinking and he knows your motivations. And you know what this must mean? In this man, there must have been some inarticulate heart desire for mercy and grace And Jesus Christ is so gracious, so eager is he to pour out on us and to embrace us and to receive us and to pardon us 
that he even responds to fragmentary, imperfect expressions of dependence and, and need that are in our heart that aren't even expressed. That's how eager he is. He responds to it, or another way to put it, Jesus Christ is aggressive with his grace. He comes at you and pours his grace into you if you even give him the slightest of openings. In fact, he actually creates his own openings. Faith is a gift. This man wasn't trying to believe. This man wasn't trying to find forgiveness. He wasn't trying to find grace, and Jesus comes after him. If he was hard-hearted, no, Jesus wouldn't have done that. I mean, he's not contradicting the rest of the Bible, but Jesus, so eager is he to receive us and to help us and to love us that he even takes inarticulate, fragmentary, imperfect expressions of need and dependence, and he puts his grace in. He doesn't just, not only does he do it, we forgive him the slightest opening, but he creates his own openings. Now, if that's true, that faith is a gift, do you realize what that means? No matter where you are on the spectrum of whether you say, I believe well, I don't believe much, or I'm struggling to believe. Um, do you remember three weeks ago I was telling you the story from, of uh, the princess and Curdie? There's a, a book written by George MacDonald, a children's book called The Princess and the Goblin. He wrote it in 1872. It's a very lovely story. And I used the example that several people have given me some heat for it because I didn't tell you how the story ended. But uh, the uh, Curdie is a young, strapping, young miner, and he has been captured by goblins, and he's caught in a cave, and he's trapped. And uh, little Princess Irene, who's only eight years old, has been by her grandmother, has been given a magic thread. And the grandmother says, if there's ever trouble, you follow that thread with your finger, and you follow it no matter where it takes you, and it will lead you to safety and to me. And so one night, the goblins are in her, in the, she hears the goblins in her house, and she gets out her thread, and she starts to follow it, and it takes her right down into the heart of the darkness she most dreads, but she follows it in faith. It's a thread of faith. We talked about that. And she finds Curdie, and she leads him out. But here's the thing that we didn't talk about, and that is that Curdie can't see the thread. He can't feel it. He can't see it. And he keeps saying, why are we going that way? And Irene says, the thread, my grandmother's thread. Yeah, 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 sure. But then, of course, out she comes. And in the end, she turns around and says, oh, Curdie, now you believe in a grandmother and the thread, and he doesn't. And so she's very, very vexed. She saved him. He says, well, I'm very grateful that you uh, saved my life, but I don't believe in the grandmother of the thread. And, and she says, well, how could I have ever saved you without the thread? So later she sees the grandmother, and she jumps up in grandmother's lap. And grandmother says to her, isn't Curdie a good boy and a brave boy? Aren't we glad that we saved him? Yes, grandmother, says Irene, but it wasn't good of him not to believe me when I was telling the truth. And what's the grandmother say? People must believe what they can, Irene, and those who believe more must never be hard upon those who believe less. I doubt if you would have believed it all yourself if you hadn't seen some of it beforehand. Now, what George MacDonald's trying to say is extremely important, and it's profoundly biblical. Did you hear that? People who believe more must never be hard on those who believe less. Why? Because faith ultimately is not a virtue. It's a gift. Faith is not a virtue. It's a gift. It's, it's something that Jesus pulls, pushes at you at a certain point, some point plump, someplace where you're not expecting it, like this man wasn't expecting it. Jesus will find an opening when you're not looking for it, and he'll go after you with his grace. And he'll make it possible for you to believe. And that's what you have to believe. Now, if that's the case, then there's two kinds of people let me address real quickly. 
What if you're somebody who's struggling and you say, oh, I want to believe and I can't believe? Well, stop looking in here and go to him and say, help me believe. And you're going to say, oh, you mean if I ask Jesus for faith, he'll give it to me? If you ask Jesus for faith, you will find he's been after you for years and you didn't see it. Whenever you go to him and say, so you're the one who gives faith. I've been trying to work it up by reasoning and thinking and getting myself into certain states and coming to Redeemer and hoping that the sermon will move me. And I've been trying, you know, to, to, to get it myself. So you're the one who has faith. Give it to me. And if, you're, if you do that, you'll find that he's been after you because he, he's the author of it. And, oh, Christian friends, if you believe, please listen to the grandmother. Please listen to your grandmother who says, if you really, are you so arrogant as to think that people who believe less than you, there's something wrong with their heads? As if there's something that, that your wisdom and clear-headedness brought you to the great place where you are? Don't be so arrogant. Those who believe more must never be too hard on those who believe less. There's the assurance. Here you've got Jesus with claws. But you've also got a Jesus who is so gracious and so eager to bless and so eager to embrace that he responds even to inarticulate, fragmentary, you know, imperfect expressions of need and dependence. In some ways, I think you just have to ache in his direction. But certainly, he not only throws in his grace at the, great, at the smallest opportunity, but he creates his own openings and opportunities in your heart. Now, that's not all we have. There's one more group of people who is incredibly put out, very, very... Uh, confused and shocked and, of course, angry. And actually, if we look and see how Jesus responds to them, we will get not only the challenge and not only the assurance, but a certain amount of power to let him heal you wholly. Because that's what this is about. What does it mean to be wholly healed by Jesus, completely healed by Jesus, thoroughly down deep healed by Jesus? And here's where you get the power to let him do his work. It says, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees, some of the teachers of the law, verse 8, were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they are totally right. Do you know why they're totally right? Do you know what Jesus is claiming? Tom, Dick, and Harry walk into a room. Tom punches Dick smack in the mouth. Blood everywhere. And Harry goes up to Tom and says, Tom... I forgive you for punching Dick in the mouth. It's all right. It's over. What is Dick going to say? Harry, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. Common sense. Do you know what Jesus is claiming when he looks at a man and says, I forgive your sins, all of your sins now? He's saying that all your sins have been against me. Everything you've ever done has been against me. The only person who could possibly say to a human being, everything you've ever done wrong has been against me, would be your creator, the person who made you, and who says, I made you for a purpose, and when you violate that purpose, you see, you're violating the very thing that I made you for. Only your creator, only your Lord could say that, and Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God Almighty. And they know it. And they realize this, this man is not just claiming to be a miracle worker. 
He is claimed to be the Lord of the universe. Now, how does Jesus respond? And this is what's so interesting. It says, Jesus immediately knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? Now, this is one of the great questions that has been uh, studied for 20 centuries. In fact, I got out my... um, Anchor Bible, which is probably the uh, Anchor Bible uh, commentary. The Anchor Bible commentary might be the most uh, thorough and scholarly and respected uh, set of Bible commentaries. And it was very funny because the commentator, you know, looks at this verse, verse 9, where it says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your mat and walk? And the commentator says, you know, after 20 centuries and millions of pages written on this, we still have a good question here in front of us, and that is, which is easier? We still don't know what the answer to this question is. He says, which is easier? Class, which is easier? What is Jesus trying to get across? Now, at first look, Jesus seems to be saying, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but not anybody can heal. So to show you that I am the Lord come from heaven with the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. So at first glance, it looks like he's trying to say it's a lot harder to heal somebody than to forgive somebody. And that's probably right. See, the reason this is a profound question that's been, you know, that's so brilliant and profound and has been uh, something that we've been thinking about for 20 centuries is because there's more than one answer to the question. And on the one hand, what he does is, in a sense, the answer to the question. Of course, anybody can say you know, your sins are forgiven. But to prove to you that I am the Lord of heaven, I say, take up your, your mat and walk. But listen, look carefully. In this question, the verb say is synonym with do. When he says, take up your bed and walk, he's affecting that healing. The word affects the healing. And therefore, when he says, your sins are forgiven... Jesus also has to affect it. And here's what, I think here's what Jesus is trying to point to. He's saying, oh, my friends, it is going to be infinitely, infinitely, infinitely harder to affect the forgiveness of sins. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the Savior. Any miracle worker can say, take up your bed and walk. But only the Savior of the world will be able to say to a human being, all of your sins are forgiven. In other words, he's pointing to the cross when he says it's going to be so much harder to forgive your sins than to heal your body. And many commentators say it is at this spot, as early as chapter 2, that the shadow of the cross falls across the path of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus knows what they're thinking. Hmm? Verse 8. And he knows that if he heals this man... And if he shows that he's not just a miracle worker who can heal, but he's also the savior of the world, that that's his claim, he knows if he heals that man, they're going to kill him. He knows if he heals that man, he's taking the first step down the inexorable path to his death. So he looks around, and he sees half the people wanting to kill him and half the people wanting to use him to get their real saviors. And he forgives them. The great irony here is that by doing the healing 
and therefore taking the first step down the road to his death, he is affecting our forgiveness. Jesus knows the only way he's ever going to make the legs of that man mobile is if his own legs are nailed immobile to a cross. They go together. They have to go together. His only way that he's going to make that man dance is if he dies. And, you know, he looks at them. He sees them at their worst. Here's the group of people who are trying to kill him. Here's the group of people trying to use him. And he loves us. Um, in The Fisher King, there's two scenes or three scenes that I love in that movie. But the one that I've occasionally referred to in the past is, is, is this one. Robin Williams takes Amanda Plummer out. Robin's sort of a mess, and he kind of hates himself. Amanda Plummer is a klutzy girl, and she hates herself. And so they get together, of course. This is New York. And... Uh, uh, they go out for a, a, a date, and they come back, and he says, can I call you? Can I have your number so I can call you? And she says, no, you can never see me again. And he says, why? She says, well, paraphrasing here, she says, you know, uh, uh, by some weird accident, we've gotten to the end of the first date, and you don't hate me yet, but you will, and I just can't handle that rejection. You'll hate me, and I don't want it. I don't want it. So thank you very much for taking me out, but you can never see me again because I know you're going to hate me. Once you get to know me, you're going to hate me. And Robin Williams confesses something. He confesses that he'd been watching her. He confesses that he's been uh, noticing her. And this is what he says, again, a paraphrase. He says, you don't get it. I know you're clumsy and you knock everything over. I know you're down on yourself. I know you're horribly shy. I know you have no friends. But I already know all this. And I still love you. So you see, I will never leave you. And she says to him, are you for real? And it transforms her. Now, if, of course it will. To have somebody look down and see you at your worst and to say, but I still love you, which means that's infallible, bomb-proof, industrial-strength love, a love you can never wear out. That's what everybody's looking for. Even when one human being gives it to another human being, but when the Lord of the universe, the one who's got the authority to forgive sins, your author sees you at your worst, hmm? half of them trying to kill him, half of them trying to use him, sees you at your worst, falling asleep on him in the garden, and says, I'm still going to die for you. That should go to your heart. See, those are the claws. You know what? The claws that Jesus uses to go deep into your heart and to change what your heart really wants are the, the thing that really convicts you, really shows you you've been wrong, really makes you weep over how, you, how you've been living your life wrong is his love. It's his kindness. There's that great place in Lewis's autobiography where he says, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. Do you believe that? The hardness of Jesus Christ will be kinder than the softness of men. The things that he does to you to show you, to wake you up, to make you go deep, but the thing that will really, really, really change you is to see the convicting sight of him loving you and saying, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to do this for you. Jesus Christ says, you think you know what you really need, but you don't. I'm not going to play the rotten practical joke of giving you the deepest desire of your heart until I change the deepest desire of your heart so that it's me. And then only then can you know a little bit of what paradise is. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, giving us a healer, a real healer. 
We thank you that uh, the healing never comes the way we expect. We always go thinking that this is the main place we hurt, and you always take us some other place. We thank you that you are one we can trust, however, because uh, by your stripes we're healed. By your wounds we're healed. Our wounds close up because your wounds were opened. And we thank you that you have uh, been willing to love us uh, to the last. And we pray now that you would help us to appropriate this and to apply this to our lives by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.